My name is Sam Alexander. I'm the CEO and owner of PMD Beauty. And what I love about beauty is that I can come into work every day and help build brilliant confidence from the inside and out. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. On today's episode of Beauty Is Your Business, we are buzzing about the $23.8 billion beauty device business. I'm Denise Dente, and I am here with my co-host, Jessica Quick. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Denise. Really excited for today's conversation. I know. And you yourself are a bit of a junkie for these beauty devices as well. So uh, this is good timing. Absolutely. And I love the innovation that comes from this sector. I'm not surprised to hear those numbers growing. And I expect as you know, technology continues to really develop how it intersects between what we call the bottle, the liquid in the bottle and the tech. And I think that's where there's so much opportunity for companies like PMD Beauty that we're speaking with today. And I think that, you know, for me, I'm excited to dive into some of this and really understand the opportunity. I know. And I get excited about the numbers side of it when I see the percentages of growth that are expected from the device business, specifically in the U.S., I think I read a statistic that it's going to hit something like 101 billion in the next 10 years. So the CAGR on this side of the business is pretty spectacular, which leads us into Sam, our guest today. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped to be here and have a cool conversation. That's right. Well, what we love about your company and organization is some of the background about how you founded the company and how it really took off. I know I had the opportunity to speak with your team while I was in Bologna and talking through that story, I was thrilled to be able to get you to come on the show and share your story with our listeners. We're a, a bootstrapped company that's been built off of women telling their friends. And so I think we have a pretty cool history and something that we're proud of, and I think it's definitely worth sharing. Well, so it sounds like you're being a little modest. Tell us in the very beginning, <laughs> when you first launched the company, how it really hit and really kind of took fire in the early days. It's kind of an interesting beginning. So the product was actually invented back in 2003 and four, our flagship, our microabrasion device. And it was made or created from some doctors. And there was some, a company that went around and fixed microabrasion machines. And so they became like experts at it. Most people know who have used in clinic or in office microabrasion device or machine, they're pretty finicky. So they learned the ins and outs. And this was back in like 2003, pretty innovative, said, hey, we should do this for an at-home version. So they created it. And in 2004, they manufactured 2,000 devices and they launched. And unfortunately, it just didn't quite hit. It's almost like they were too early and they weren't necessarily on the, the marketing side as well. There was some patent problems as well. And so the company kind of went away until 2010. And in 2010, I became involved 
it's a funny story. It's we had 1800 devices and that's what kind of originally funded the company. And we took out of those 1800, we took 500 of them and we just started seeding them back when like seeding wasn't really a word that we were giving them to influencers. And again, back when influencers wasn't really a word either. And so we called them mommy bloggers, but they're women, they're moms that blogged and we gave them a product, sent them a product and said, Hey, if you like this, talk about it. So we sent 500 out and I still actually remember going through the blog posts. And I remember this one mom who got our device and she said, I've tried everything and I've never had confidence in my skin. I hide behind my makeup. And this is the first time where I've consistently used something where I'm not wearing as much makeup and my confidence has gone through the roof. I just feel so much more confident in my skin and myself. And I remember reading that and going, holy cow, this is going to be big. And that kind of gave us the confidence to kind of push ahead. We sent out more product. We started selling devices from these influencers and it just started to take off. I remember one day being in my office, the producer of Dr. Oz called and I remember answering the phone. He's like, Hey, I'm the producer of Dr. Oz. He's like, Dr. Oz really likes your device. Will you guys give us permission to put it on the, the show? And I remember thinking, uh, let me think about that. That was like a huge home run because that was early on when Dr. Oz really had a huge presence, really was influential and his show was crushing it. And so that really put us on the map. The Neiman Marcus actually contacted us and that kind of put us into kind of the prestige world. And it's kind of like multiple things, just kind of a domino effect of doors opening and us having the ability to kind of tell our story and frankly, having women tell our story into something where we're now kind of a, it's a worldwide brand and we've had success. We do post-purchase surveys. And if you look at our post-purchase survey, the highest place we're getting the sales from is from friends telling their friends. And that's pretty awesome. That's something that we're proud of. And those original 1800 devices, that's what funded our company. Yeah. It sounds like it's the original influencer market, right? Which was your friends and family. And I'm really curious listening to this story so the company starts, they get out these devices and it just shows you, right? Like even though they have a great product, they didn't have marketing yet. They didn't know yet the target customer, what they wanted to do. And so it really goes quiet. And then you come in. So do you have a marketing background or a sales background? It sounds like because you obviously were pivotal in looking at this from a different way and this influencer, mommy blogger. So walk me through a little bit of when you entered, where your background is, and you said the opportunity, but what was it that you saw? Because that's what dramatically changed this trajectory. Yeah. So this is like taking me way back and I can't believe it's been almost 14 years, which is insane. Oh my gosh. I finished a master's and an MBA, a master's in business, and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was like my goal. And my first job out was with a dermatologist, the world-renowned dermatologist and his son. And they had just started a company called SkincareRx.com, which basically took, and this was in 2007. This was back when like e-commerce was just kind of getting going. And I kind of got into the right place at the right time. I joined that company as their CMO, their chief marketing officer. It was a little startup. We were doing like $40,000, $50,000 a month. And I came in and I dug into 
SEO, search engine optimization, and search engine marketing. And so my background really is in marketing. This is crazy, but within like three to six months, we went from doing $40,000 for me starting and setting up Google AdWords. And this just shows you how far we've come and how crazy it was back in 2007. We went from 40 to 50,000 a month to $2 million within three to six months. It was insane. And it was like, that was back in the day when no one understood SEO. It wasn't really a commodity like it is now. And they didn't understand Google AdWords. I was one of the earlier ones that understood it, especially in this industry and took advantage of that. And so as we grew in that, I was over curating products. So we went from selling 150 products, physician grade products to selling like 15,000. So I brought in Clarisonic. I brought in, I remember Baby Quasar. I brought in some of these early device companies and I started to take notice like, these are sweet. This is awesome. And then in 2010, my partner who originally helped the group in 2003 and four, he was in real estate and in 2008 kind of lost everything, but he still had connections with his product. And he came to me and said, Sam, what do you think about this product? When he showed me the personal microderm, it was kind of like the best way I could describe it. Like the heavens opened. Like it was one of those things just because I had seen so many early pioneer devices. When I saw that, it was like, yep, this is my ticket. And I had kind of grown out of the skincare X. And so I basically brokered a deal for me to then move to PMD. And I actually brought Dr. Taylor who I originally worked with, he's still a, he's a minority owner at PMD. So we still have a great relationship. They had sent sold skincare X, which I helped build, but he's still a part of our board and a part of the company. So then after you take your Dr. Oz and your 1800 units and where you're at today with your large assortment of devices and colors and all of those things. Let's go through sort of the middle section when you grew the company from the original moment of the mommy bloggers to Dr. Oz and where you're at today. Take us through some of those early learnings and things that you discovered and some best practices. I know our audience would love to hear that. It's very interesting. We kind of use that mommy blogger path Frankly, we still use it. That was from 2010 to 12, but between like 12, 13, and 14, we were again very fortunate to be early pioneers and adapters to influencer marketing. This is kind of funny. It went from calling them mommy bloggers to then we called them YouTubers. They weren't influencers to us. Like we, that wasn't a word, it was a YouTuber. And so we started to send out product to YouTubers and working with them. And it was so early on where, you know, we would pay a huge influencer five grand, which today it would cost like a hundred or 50. And we would spend five grand and straight up, we would bring in like $300,000 from one post. It was insane. And no one really even knew what we were doing. In fact, there were companies within YouTube doing it, but it was like lower priced items. And here we were, we were selling you know, $160 device to $200. And we went bonkers on that. And so we really drove that until to this day, you go on YouTube on our brand, we literally have tens of thousands, 10, I'm serious, tens of thousands of videos and content that you could like watch for days. 
And so that was kind of our early roots. And so we rode that. The problem with everything though, right, is when you get in early, people do take notice and then you start getting the other innovative brands getting in. And so as that happened, there was more competition with the influencers. And then you start getting the larger brands buying into it. And so kind of in that, like that 2015 to like 17, 18, it wasn't as efficient as it was early on. And then in 2018, that's where we started to flip the switch for Facebook and Instagram. We still had a huge budget, still worked with influencers, but then we kind of said, hey, we can now be kind of early on with Facebook. And so we were really fortunate there. But again, back early on and people who've, who've worked with Meta understands that it's it's not the same as it was five or six years ago. I mean, we were getting, you know, five, six ROASs. It's different. So we kind of transitioned from Molly Blogger to YouTuber into the digital space. And then we've got into Pinterest and TikTok and Snapchat. We still do YouTube. And now we're kind of like even reinventing and trying to be on the cutting edge of what's next. That's where I want to go. I mean, based on your expertise and like you said, when you're early into the game, the ROAs, the KPIs, the efficiencies of certain marketing initiatives are so strong. So it's great to hear that. But obviously today in 2023, those marketing levers are less efficient that you used. Where do you see kind of the next frontier or the next higher opportunity for these marketing initiatives and getting your brand awareness out there? I think a lot of companies that were involved in the run with Meta, we were spoiled. And I think there's going to be wins in all of the digital and there's going to be wins in TikTok. A lot of brands are having success. We're starting to see that. But you have to invest a lot because you have to, you can't just create an ad and post it on TikTok. You have to build your own organic content and kind of create a community there. And I would say the same thing with Pinterest. We spend a lot of time on organic posts on all of our digital. So there's two things I would say for me, the future is going to be one, it's going to be getting back to I don't say traditional, but it's kind of a traditional take using digital and everything's at your fingertips. So like we're having wins with TV right now and there's some TVs got better with tracking, even linear TV, like traditional cable TV, there's tracking mechanisms and then there's all the CTV. So I think there's wins there. We call it the pyramid, the pyramid of influence. You still got to get people that are influential talking about your products. So that's still important from either from celebrities or influencers. That's always, I think, going to be important. Same thing with even doctors and estheticians. With all that being said, I think there's kind of like a traditional mix with using the tools that this digital era has created. What we've seen is we just have to like make better ads. You really have to think through on your ads and your creative and you really have to stand out because five years ago, you could put anything on meta and it would work. Now you have every brand out there that that's what they're doing. And you have to create an ad that stands out and that is different and that stops people because if not, you're just noise. And so I just think you just have to get smarter and you have to work harder. But I think there's wins when you do that. I know that you've expanded the product offering pretty significantly since the early days. And I think one of the things that I find interesting is you're using your social platforms to not only outwardly talk to your audience, but you're also getting feedback from your audience. 
Can you take us through kind of your social listening and how that is impacting the NPD process for when you're developing new product? Yeah. So we have like Facebook groups that are kind of like VIP groups that we really try to get them involved. We have a great customer service manager, like in customer service, you kind of always hear about the one-offs. So if we're selling thousands and thousands of devices, our customer service manager is hearing the problems. And, you know, you might have not necessarily issues, like something where customers are saying, hey, I wish it could do this. So we use that actually quite a bit, just like talking with her, listening to our customers. Hey, what changes can we make? We use our Facebook groups. We survey our customers a lot. Like our customers are pretty good at giving us feedback. And so they definitely influenced like what we're doing and sometimes even the colors we've done Disney. We have a Disney collaboration right now. They're helping choose that. So it's definitely, we're leveraging that. I would say surveys in that Facebook group are the big ones that we do. I also saw the Disney piece and I was excited to talk about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's been a while since we've had a brand on that's leveraged licensing. So I would love to dive a little bit into that Disney partnership. How challenging was it to get a license agreement with Disney and some of the lessons learned in doing that? I think a lot of our listeners with brands would be definitely interested in this. And I think it's one of those areas that feels a little bit scary until you're in it. So could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, we wanted a Disney partnership. Just I think it helps build credibility. And I think it's kind of fun. It creates like some newness and it's Disney. So right now we're we're still figuring it out. Disney has pretty high demands and it's pretty expensive. And I don't want to go through how expensive, but it's pretty dang expensive. You're paying basically a fee. Working with Disney, they'll look at your brand, does it fit? But a lot of it, are you willing to pay those fees? And so right now, I wouldn't say like it's like a financially, it's like a home run, but it's something that we're excited about. And I think it's, we can leverage it to help kind of build that credibility. But I would say, yeah, it is, it's a lot to bite off. If I was a smaller brand, it's not something that I would have as a priority, but I think as an aspiration, as you grow something for us. So if I think about this, just stepping me through your decision process, you look at your brand and say, look, I think there's some unique opportunities to partner. And then you looked at who your customer was, you thought of Disney, and you isolated down to, okay, Disney could be unique. Then I'm assuming you reached out to Disney and started that conversation and started to really understand what it would take to partner with them. And then from a timeline, just as a, again, generically, how long would you say that from the minute you started reaching out to when you were able to actually get this partnership off the ground, how long did that really take you? I would say you probably should plan on like a year, year and a half, because one of the challenges with any type of partnership is that, and I think with Disney, they want to protect their brand. They are much more involved than we really thought they would be on like our designs, like with approvals and even telling us what we can and can't do. You may get the paperwork done, but just to sort out what princess you're using, what prints you're using, what colors you're using, what you can use, what you can't do, like your months and months just going back and forth with that. And so, yeah, I would say probably a, a year and a half. When you say intimidating, yeah, it is. There is a lot there. It's not <laughs> like you want to have an organization where you can facilitate that. And we're frankly probably right on that borderline where we felt like, yeah, let's go for it. And then it's fun. That's the part that I'm interested in is 
know, you've seen different companies partner with different larger entertainment companies or movies. What made you kind of focus on or think about Disney? And then when you start talking about the princesses or princes and how that equates to who your target consumer is, how do those two correlate to one another, your target consumer and then Disney? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One, our consumer, I think the word is used as the golden age for our brand is probably 35. It's the 24 to probably 48 year old is kind of like our customer with 35 being like the sweet spot. And so if you start looking at Disney, like, yeah, it just kind of ties in it. One, it builds credibility. It ties in to kind of like aspirations. And then also we launched the clean mini and that's our goal is to have Disney themes on that. So you're kind of hitting a younger demographic for us on the clean mini. And we have some like younger princess concepts that we're working on. And then on like the 35 year old, the women that we've surveyed and talked to, they still like our customers. She likes Disney and it's classy to her. It's the Minnie and Mickey. And that's kind of was our launch. No one in our industry or tools that we've seen in the U.S. have done this. And we felt like it helped elevate our brand to say like PMD is word legit. Not everyone can just go set up something with Disney. I think consumers know that too. Absolutely. I love the conversation kind of spinning a little bit towards competitive set and competitors. And I definitely agree. I think Disney sets you apart and I haven't seen it in the device space. Having said that, what do you see in this device space? You know, you've got competitors, you said it early on, even as you were starting to hit your stride, of course, a lot of people are going to come into that ocean and start to bring things to market quickly because you've already started to set the pace and design and innovation and so forth. What are you doing now to stay ahead of competitors? I know you talked about your customers and your surveys and listening to them, but I have to imagine in addition to that, you also have some other strategies or discussions around the device space, the competitors that are there, and what you can continue to do to stay ahead. What do some of those conversations look like? Yeah, there's a few things. One, like our soft set of skills would be like listening to the consumer. And then you can kind of get data behind that too. But I would just say this without giving away like exactly what we're doing. But like there's a lot of data out there, a lot of data. And you can see what people are thinking and searching and what's hot. There's data out there that you can go get. And so, and anyone has access to it. Using that with what we see, using the data with customer, and then just seeing where we think things are going. It's kind of that triangle. I would just say for us too, like what's really easy to do, and people do this all the time, they just go onto Alibaba or they go to a trade show. It's a Chinese manufacturer, Vietnamese manufacturer. And they've got like 10 devices and they choose that device and they put their logo on it. I think consumers can see through that. Everything we do is 100% custom. That's good. That's a great point of view. Yeah. The market's just filled with Chinese knockoffs. And frankly, there's brands that are good brands that are have gone that route. We've said, we're not going to do that. We're truly going to innovate. And we look at all the competition out there and we say, how can we not only make it better, but how can we innovate from that? And you can see that with the clean. We innovated. And so that's kind of our model, looking at data, making certain that we innovate. Like a consumer has to see and feel the difference. 
you can feel the difference between our products and some of the others, especially the knockoffs out there, or just the devices that are manufacturers or they make 10 of them and they try to go sell them to 20 different brands. You also mentioned early on in our conversation about how Neiman Marcus actually called you and talking about your distribution because your distribution early on was direct to consumer and obviously still is today, but I can go into a variety of beauty suppliers and or stores and locations and find your product. So from a distribution strategy standpoint, how have you been able to address the market over the years? Yeah, it's interesting, like, just to be straightforward, like early on, you're just trying to make things happen. Like there were like blessings, frankly, like with Neiman Marcus and kind of getting us down that path. We had a a really big run with QVC that I believed helped drive awareness. This is crazy that we sent 21 semi trucks full of personal microbes to QVC for one area. I mean, we had a good run with QVC and that was back when QVC was just, they were a monster of a company and they had a huge influence. And so there's just like these little things. I mean, yeah, we got into Nordstrom and then Ulta and our goal has been, we want to be where the consumer is like period. Yeah, I would say our distribution's incredible right now. And but that's been more of our goal. Yeah, we're not gonna just go into the the Saks or the Neemans. Like we want to be where the consumer is. And our consumer, we know who she is, we know where she shops, and that's where we wanna be. Look, I think there's been so many great nuggets on this episode so far that our listeners can take away from really understanding the consumer, understanding this influencer piece and this triangle of influence, which I love that you talked about the pyramid of influence. I'm definitely taking that away. If our listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about PMD, how do you recommend they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm open on like LinkedIn. They could reach out. My email is just sam.a at trypmd.com, but I'm happy to to network. These are fun because it sounds like Sam's got everything put together and PMD's got everything perfect, but it's like, no, this is business. Like we're constantly learning. And that's, I think, part of business. You have to be willing to learn and fail and get up. And that's part of being a business owner and running a business. So we're constantly on the look for new innovative ways to make our brand. So I'm sure there's a lot that I can learn from people reaching out. So happy to chat. Well, thank you, Sam, so much for being on the show. And if you want to keep buzzing with us, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.